Don't think you're going to succeed because you take a rental and you can turn it into an Airbnb. Just because you call it an Airbnb isn't going to make it one. <laughs> it's got to be still the right location, the right configuration, the right demographics. The temptation is to look at a property and say, I can't make the numbers work as a rental, but the Airbnb numbers would work great. You got to make sure you're applying realistic Airbnb numbers to make sure that you're not just saying this long-term rental can actually make more money than it should. The only people that I have seen whose 1031s have failed have been those who were not laser focused on where and what they wanted to buy before their sale closed. Everybody want to get the bag, but y'all really know what it's going to take. Trying to figure out how to start now. Blue gels, about to show you the way. Because we top finance and amortizing and anything it takes to get real estate. We've been grinding all day, finding ways to get paid. Better hop on this wave because we're dropping blue gems. JB dropping blue gems. AG dropping blue gems. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing dropping blue gems. Let's go. Another episode of Blue Gems with the famous Dave Foster. Man, you are really well known in the bigger pockets community and just real estate in general as the 1031 investor. Tell us a little bit about you and how you ended up with the 1031 investor name. Kind words, guys. Of course, let's not forget Al Capone was famous also. <laughs> For a very different reason. But uh, yeah, I have now been doing 1031 exchanges for myself and for others for almost 23 years. Wow. Um, started way back in the day when a court case, and it's actually all part of our story we'll get into as we go, but got into it when there was a huge court case that had been going for 20 years, was won by the person. The IRS actually got beat, which rarely happens. But because of that, they had to offer this thing called the 1031 exchange, which allows you to sell investment real estate and go buy new investment real estate. And if you follow the process, you don't have to pay tax on the profits from the sale. You get to use that money as further leverage for yourself. And you can do that indefinitely. So yeah, 23 years ago, found that for myself. Said, my gosh, if we need it, someone else does. And sure enough, here we are later. And there's hundreds of thousands of these being done every year. Very cool story. That's awesome. So I think uh, all of us, myself included, love the word leverage, right? When we're trying to scale a, a real estate business and not having to use our own money or recycling the money that we have in terms of equity and other properties. So tell us a little bit more of how we could actually use this in our own portfolios. Sure. Well, this is actually the, the most powerful aspect to it. 1031 works best when you are trying to grow your portfolio. Because one of the key components of it is that when you sell a piece of property, in order to defer all tax, you have to purchase at least as much as you sold. And you have to use all of your proceeds to do it. So let's say we sold a $300,000 piece of property and there was a $100,000 in debt on it. That means that you would have $200,000 that goes into your exchange account. The IRS doesn't let you touch the money. It has to go to a separate third party like us. And then it goes directly to your purchase. $200,000. And you have, if you want to defer all tax, you have to purchase at least $300,000, right? But this is where it gets powerful. What if you took the $100,000, the $200,000, and used it to go buy two properties using the $200,000 as leverage as 20% down payments or four properties with $50,000 down payments? It's whatever horsepower you've got in terms of your individual credit to be able to do it. But you could go buy five, you know, two or $300,000 properties using $50,000 each. And at the end of the day, what do you have? You sold one property and you've got four 
stores now. And hopefully each one is producing even a little bit more because when you purchase these, many times you're purchasing a little bit less or a little bit different. So either the difference, like if you're in the Smoky Mountains going from just a two-bedroom cabin to one of those eight bedrooms with the video rooms and pool and everything, changes your income flow, doesn't it? Different story, yeah. And it changes it as a rate against your square footage and cost. So that's how the 1031 can be used with leverage. So those are called diversification exchange. You sell one, you buy several and borrow money for the rest. Love that. Music to my ears, that's for sure. For real. So talk to us a bit about your portfolio today. What does it look like? And then how have 1031s played into your ability to keep growing? Um, yeah, well, so what I'm, all I'm doing right now is all I'm doing. Real estate development. We uh, I added on an extension to my house. So I have my own private Airbnb, which was awesome. <laughs> uh, we live uh, just down from you guys in Reddington Shores. So simply by turning in an old shed, I now have an Airbnb on premises. The rest of my time I spend on land development for subdivisions and agricultural. So that's what I'm doing right now. That's really not where a lot of people live. I'm just an old hick farmer. So that's what I end up doing. But the real story, and I think where we got to where we are today, comes from the 1031 journey through Vacation World. We were in Denver, Colorado, and we were trying to get out of two pretty stressful, high-profile jobs. Sound familiar? That's how the whole fire movement came about, right? And so like a whole lot of people, we said, gosh, the best thing would be to get a bunch of real estate where renters are paying us, and then we'll just go do what we want. And what did we want? The farmer from Kansas and the northern Minnesota girl wanted to go live on a sailboat in the Caribbean. Don't ask me how, but we wanted to. So that was the goal. So how are we going to do that? Well, like everybody else, it was ready, fire, aim. So I bought a duplex. I fixed it up. I sold it. Awesome. Till I went to my accountant. (laughs) He said, man, did you screw up? You had a silent partner you didn't know about. And his name was Uncle Sam. (laughs) Wow. So we just figured right then, okay, this whole fix and flip, buy and sell thing, not for us. But we started to go a little bit slower. And by rental properties where the tenants were paying the mortgage, we were getting additional cash flow and we were getting some great things like depreciation, expenses, write-offs to go fix the properties, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, okay, this is the tuna, but there was still a problem. We were in Colorado. And if you guys have ever been to Denver, you know, there's no beach, <laughs> there's no Caribbean. So what are we going to do? Over the course of the next few years, we started to position using 1031 exchanges to sell in Colorado and to buy in Connecticut, and gradually transitioned our entire portfolio to Connecticut. In addition to that, several times we sold the property we lived in. Now, that's different rules than 1031. As your primary residence, you sell a piece of property you've lived in for two out of the five years prior to selling it, you get the first $500,000 of profit tax-free. So every time we sold a primary residence, that money went into the buy the boat kitty because that was tax-free dollars. Every investment property we sold, we did one of two things. We either sold it and did it 1031 and moved that to Connecticut, or we moved into it after selling mm. our primary residence. Smart. And prior to 2008, when you did that, two years later, all the profit tax-free. <laughs> I mean, it was like finding a candy store where the lock was broken. <laughs> so gradually, we ended up in Connecticut with a portfolio of rentals, and some cash in the bank to buy the boat. Then we discovered problem number two or three or four, depending on who's counting. Connecticut is on a coast, yes, but it has neither sun nor warm water. And it was like, this is really crazy. Let's get out of here. So over the course of the next couple of years, 
we started to transition our properties to Florida, where the weather was much nicer. And there was this added thing that we could do, because at that point in time, Southwest Florida was a huge vacation mecca. So instead of just transitioning into long-term rentals, we started to buy short-term rentals because we figured that'd be a great place to vacation, wouldn't it, for ourselves? So, but we want some open weeks. So let's start doing short-term rentals. And like I told you guys at the beginning, this was so long ago that we were actually at the beginning of VRBO and they let us have unlimited pictures on the front page for that category. Wow. It was awesome. (laughs) So we did that. And then after a year, we realized that we'd get jealous every time we'd get an email or a note from our tenants saying we had such a great time. We're going, okay, this is really stupid. (laughs) We're we're freezing our tushies off. They're down there enjoying our house. Let's get out of Dodge. So we moved into one of our vacation rentals. We transitioned the rest with 1031 into several other vacation rentals. And then we had enough to go buy the boat. And for the next 10 years, we used income off of our vacation rental portfolio and a free and clear boat purchased with tax-free dollars to live on a sailboat and sail all around and raise our four boys. Wow. Wow. What a story. How was living on the boat? Out of all that information, that's the part that I'm most interested in. (laughs) There's a saying that the two best times in a sailor's life are the day he buys his boat and the day he sells his boat. (laughs) I'm just here to tell you that for us, that's a lie. The best day was number one and the worst day was the day we sold it. I loved it. We had million-dollar views wherever we went. And if you wanted to move, there was no packing boxes. He just cast off the dock lines. Oh, beautiful story. Very cool. You are in Florida now. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. You've gone away from the vacation rentals. You're in land now, but 1031 Exchange is still something that you're helping other investors practice. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We're still doing it for ourselves. You know, like I said, the, the vacation rental market since 2012-ish, has really started to come on and become a lot more competitive. And as busy as we are in our other things, we decided we're just dipping our toes back into it a little bit at a time. Some of the avenues, though, that I like for potential are going to be some of the more non-traditional Airbnb routes. Uh, My wife is a registered nurse, and we are exploring the avenue of travel nurses. Mm. You guys familiar with that concept? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's eight to 12 week contracts, which is awesome because you get the highest amount of rent and a longer term commitment than just a weekend. But the whole idea and since, now let's add to that, because even since that became a thing in this market with COVID, everybody started to work from home and that movement's not really changing. But what if home was an Airbnb? And we've got clients doing that right now. Some of them are actually retired running businesses. Some of them are simply working from home doing data or whatever it is that they do. In most cases, multiple Airbnbs. And what they do is they'll go from one to the other, depending on whichever is open or depending on which season of the year it is. If it's fall and they want to be in the Smokies, they block off some time. When it's ski season, they go to Breckenridge, block off some time. If it's summer in Colorado, which is the best kept secret in the world, and bookings are slow, go stay in your at your cottage in Winter Park. So there's all sorts of ways to develop short-term rental opportunities, even in saturated market like what we're seeing right now. Just a question of learning what it is. Yeah, we love the the midterm rental is what we call it, like travel nurses, you know, insurance providers, temporary housing, anyone who's looking for that four to 12 week term. We're seeing the highest occupancy. And to your point, the revenue is much higher than a long term tenant. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. 
And no one's really talking about it. Everyone is all in on short-term rentals or all in on long-term rentals. And there's kind of this middle ground where no one's really talking about midterm. Unfortunately, we both just gave everybody a nugget and screwed up in reverse, didn't we? (laughs) Right. Now it's no longer our secret. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, to your point too, like traveling nurses are predominantly working, right? They're there just to sleep and they're great tenants. You know, they're not there throwing parties. Uh, They're really quiet. Great, great tenants to have. Absolutely. I wanted to talk a bit about, you know, how you're able to help investors like ourselves to reduce our, our tax burden. So JB and myself, you know, we're we're actively buying right now probably two to three properties a month. And one of the strategies that we've implemented is a cost segregation. So I'm sure as you know, in the short-term rental space, you're able to accelerate depreciation to help, you know, reduce some of that furniture cost, reduce some of the, the cost basis and getting to a short-term rental. So I was curious if you could tell our audience, you know, how something like that would impact the 1031. Yeah, but that's a great question. See, depreciation really is kind of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Right. Because you get to take it. And what that really does is it's a pretend game that you're playing with the IRS. The IRS is letting you pretend that your property is losing value every year. Now, we know it's not, but it's a tax write-off they give you. The problem is when you sell your property, that pretend gift they give you, you have to give it back. And that's what's called depreciation recapture. So good news, bad news. That's the bad news. Good news. When you do a 1031 exchange, depreciation is also deferred. So the basis in your old property carries forward. And again, you don't have to recapture the depreciation either. That's the good news side of it. Now, to what you were talking about, Aiden, going even further, if I'm an investor and I really need write-offs, then what I can do is exactly what you said. Do a cost segregation, take advantage of some advanced depreciation. I mean, in essence, what's happening is your whoever's doing the study is pulling out things that they can call something besides real estate, like right. an HVA system or something like that. And they'll say, well, instead of having to depreciate this out over so many years, we're going to let you depreciate the full amount of it out over this year or five years, because we're going to count it as if it's not real estate, because real estate has to be depreciated over 27 or 35 years. So you get this huge extra amount of depreciation. But the problem was, this has all happened since 2018. The problem was that to do that, you had to reclassify these things as non-real estate, which meant that when you sold it, you were not selling just real estate. In the IRS's eyes, there was all of this other stuff. And only real estate qualifies for a 1031 exchange. So up until just a few months ago, if you were to do a cost segregation and take the bonus depreciation, when you sold, even if you did a 1031, you could have a huge tax bill from depreciation recapture because of everything that had been declared to be non-1250 property or non-real estate. Does that make sense? Yep. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Several months ago, the IRS finally clarified that and said, okay, just kidding. If it normally goes with real estate, if it normally is part of a house, like wiring and plumbing and a roof, then it's still real estate for 1031 and you can carry that forward as well. So what does that let us do? It lets us buy real estate, take the absolute greatest amount of depreciation that we can as quickly as we can. And then when it's time for you to sell it, all of that gets deferred in the 1031. And as long as you buy at least as much as you sell, you defer all of that tax. And even better news, if you buy more than you sell, then that adds to your depreciation basis. So you're actually buying the opportunity to get more depreciation. 
sell a $500,000 rental. Go buy a million dollar one. That extra $500,000 is available for extra depreciation. And you can do the exact same thing. Accelerate it, cost save it, and it's still going to be deferred until you sell. And then when you sell, it goes into the 1031. So you keep talking about deferring, right? And I think this is a, a clear point to make that eventually one day, at a certain point in time, the tax bill can become due. Is there any ways around that? In other words, is it possible to defer your tax bill indefinitely or roll it over to a kid or another descendant or family member? Do I have to pay you for that that intro? Because that's awesome. It's a great layup for you, I think. <laughs> yeah, because we're not we're not slam dunking anymore. Right. Those days are gone. Right. Uh, we'll take layups. So there's what I call the four Ds of 1031 investing. D number one, obviously, we've used the word. It's defer. Because anytime you sell a piece of property that's highly appreciated or highly depreciated, you can indefinitely defer paying tax on that. And an important note, big asterisk, as long as it's deferred, you get the benefit from it. So you sell a $100,000 property or you sell a property with a $100,000 gain. Instead of paying $20,000 in capital gains tax, you can go buy at 20% down another $100,000 property. And if you're making say 10% on your money, that money is going to you every year, as long as you own it. So defer. Second D, defer. Because like we talked about at the very beginning, you can sell one and buy several. You can sell several together and go buy one big one. You can move markets. That's huge in the vacation markets, isn't it? Because 2014, you couldn't pay people to go to Sevierville or Gallenberg (laughs) with the fire. Nowadays, tell you what, you're on a gold mine if you've got it. Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, Taos, New Mexico, Orlando, Florida. Defer while moving into what you see is the next great market. Okay, lightning round for the two of you. What's the third D? Defer. <laughs> Trick question. Oh, I was, I was like, I'm trying to think of what, what other words have been. <laughs> because what you can do over time, over what I call the life cycle of a real estate investor, remember you can convert property from your primary residence into investment. I'm sorry, from investment into your primary. And when you do that, even now, you will over time get a proration of that gain tax-free. I have a realtor in uh, St. Pete Beach, has three identical condo units he 1031 into. His game plan, he moved into the first one. No tax due, still deferred. When he sells, he'll get to prorate that and take the amount during the time when he lived there tax-free. So if he lives in it for eight years, rented it for two, he gets 80% of the gain tax-free. Whoa. So we can still do some elimination, can't we? Or if you're getting ready to retire, do what we did, 1031 into vacation rentals. And then when you're ready, turn that into your retirement. Go into some sort of more passive investments. Okay. I would ask you what the fourth D was, but we've almost run out of them. Here's a clue. It's not defer. The fourth D is die. Because when you die, your heirs, you were kind of alluding to this, Aiden. your heirs will get the property at what is called a step up in basis, which means all of the gain over all of the years that you deferred it goes away for them. And they get to start with a brand new property that's worth exactly how much it is on the day that they inherited it. And they can now start their own life path of 1031. So defer, 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 and then finally die. I don't know. Michael, 
is I've not done it for 23 years. My goal is to finish never paying a penny in capital gains tax on real estate. I love that plan. We are thrilled to announce Blue Gems Management. After building out 24 short-term rental properties of our own, we're now helping other investors buy their time back. With over 300 five-star reviews, we really understand the importance of guest experience. If you're interested in making short-term rentals passive, click the link in the show notes below and someone from our team will contact you soon. Now back to the show. All of this sounds awesome, right? But what's the catch? What are what are some things that you see investors run into that you could almost forewarn us that way we could be prepared going into this? Yeah, 1031s are not DIY. You have to use an unrelated third party called the qualified intermediary. That's IRS required. That's the role that we fill. It's kind of great because I feel like Switzerland. I'm everybody's buddy because you have to use me. <laughs> so it, it works out great. But And as part of using the qualified intermediary, it's a pretty rigid process. There's some strict timelines. You've only got 45 days to find your new property, 180 to close on it. The valuations we talked about, the title holder kind of has to transfer consistently as well. So if you fail in one of those areas, your entire exchange fails. So that's the bad news. Good news is that if you're using a good QI, they know this like the back of their hand, they've lived in it, and they can guide you through it strategically. But the complexity can get people. You probably heard and picked up on what I think is the greatest challenge, and that's the time frames. You know, only 45 days to identify, and after day 45, I can't change the list. So I get—I mean, I hear it all the time. Gosh, Dave, I put three properties on my list, got outbid for every one of them. What can I do? The answer is nothing. If you're past day 45, you're stuck. As a matter of fact, one time in my career, I had a client who had to go back and purchase the property that he got outbid for because it was the only one that was on his list. The IRS doesn't care who you're buying it from. The IRS cares that you're buying the property that was on your list. He got outbid, his 45 was over, so he went back and gave a healthy chunk of money to that person just so they would let him buy the property. That was a really bad day. So you're talking about a list. I'm curious about that. How many properties can be on this list? So the IRS doesn't want to see the LA County phone book. So what they say is that as long as it's three or fewer properties, then it doesn't matter how many are on the list. Now, this will work out great for someone who's going from a larger property to a much smaller property. But as long as you keep it three or fewer, it doesn't matter how much the value is. So you could sell for 100000 You could put three $5 million properties on there. That's cool. The problem is, though, if you want to name more than three, then the total value of everything on your list either cannot be more than 200% of what you sold, or you actually purchase every property on it. So you're selling for $200,000. You could name three $5 million properties. You could name four properties as long as their total was no more than $800,000, or you purchased every one of them. Kind of see how difficult that can be, right? Absolutely. So what we do with people to help them mitigate that is we say start shopping way before you sell. Be focused, know your area, know what you're looking for, get on the radar screen because it's actually perfectly fine to be under contract for your purchase before your sale closes. So think about the buyer's market or the seller's market that we're just coming out of. Folks in California were waiting until three weeks before their purchase was scheduled to close to even list their California property because they get five offers at full price cash, 10 day close on day one. So they could be under contract for their new property for a long time, but still get their old property closed. 
So if it's a seller's market, take advantage of that. Or are you guys seeing still a lot of new construction vacation rentals? Still a good amount. Not as not as much as uh, last year and the year before. There's probably going to be a few show up in Fort Myers. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Over the next period of time, right? Absolutely. It's perfect for new construction if you don't have to buy the lot. But you go find a builder who's building a vacation home or a home, and you get under contract way before it's done. It may not be done for a year, but you get it under contract. As long as you haven't taken title to any part of it, you're fine. And then round about five or six months before it's scheduled to be done, put your old property on the market. You already know what you're going to buy. Now we simply have to make sure that your old property gets sold and that the new property doesn't go past 180 days from your sale so that you can take title to it. So you can be really very patient with new construction. Makes sense? Absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. So those are some great acts for that. The timing will kill you more than anything. And we're transitioning. Um, Sellers still aren't believing it yet, but we're transitioning into a buyer's market. And when that happens, I like to tell my clients, you want to take care of the hardest job first. In a seller's market, what's the hardest job? Getting your new property under contract. But in a buyer's market, what's the toughest job? Getting your property sold. So get your property listed, get it under contract, then go find your new property. Every week that you wait, Seems like it's another rate increase from the Fed, which should mean a drop in price. But as long as you close your sale and then close your purchase, you'll be good to go. And so in a a buyer's market, it can still be just as good for you. You just have to recognize what market you're in and then adjust accordingly. And then what about financing? Is there any challenges in terms of getting the bank involved, especially for an investor wanting to use a vacation home loan or you know maximize their leverage? My two favorite types of loans for 1031 investment, multifamily, small multifamily, because you can get owner-occupied FHA. So we have set up our sons with their first home being a small multifamily. They live in half, we rent half, and they get incredible financing opportunities. My second favorite is what you just said, vacation home financing, because typically it's as good as primary residence financing. And the only requirements for a second home is that number one, it usually has to be at least 50 or 100 miles from where you live. And secondly, you have to agree to use it for personal use at least two weeks a year. Now, neither one of those criteria create any problem with treating the property as an investment property for the IRS. So you can 1031 into a vacation investment property using second home financing. Perfectly fine. I love that app. So many gems you're dropping. We love it. Hey, got to do it if it's the Blue Gem Podcast, right? (laughs) Exactly. Absolutely. We have a, a lot of a newer investors trying to get into the short-term rental space. What would be your advice for someone you know, just getting started into the real estate investing game? The first thing is going to be the reality check that don't think you're going to succeed because you take a rental and you can turn it into an Airbnb. I see that. I'm sure you guys do too. We see that mistake so many times. Just because you call it an Airbnb isn't going to make it one. <laughs> It's got to be still the right location, the right configuration, the right demographics. Oh, gosh, I remember I actually, we used to try to stay in them. It was having so much fun. I remember staying in one several years ago. That was an Airbnb in Chicago. Pool and everything. It was a bedroom in a house. (laughs) I propped the door up against the doorknob. It was actually kind of scary. But it doesn't make it a good Airbnb. You've got to really research The temptation, you got to resist it. The temptation is to look at a property and say, I can't make the numbers work as a rental, but the Airbnb numbers would work great. You got to make sure you're applying realistic 
Airbnb numbers to make sure that you're not just saying this long-term rental can actually make more money than it should. That's mistake number one. So you got to really be focused on that. Mistake number two, the only people that I have seen whose 1031s have failed have been those who were not laser focused on where and what they wanted to buy before their sale closed. I had one lady who was just all over the map, substantial sale. And she said, I'm thinking like Airbnbs and the Smokies, but gosh, downtown Manhattan, San Diego, where home is. I mean, I could go anywhere. And what about all the commercial buildings out there? I was like, ah. (laughs) J45 came and she still could not focus herself. And so her opportunity died with that. Be realistic, be focused. And uh, if you're timid or somewhat unexperienced, it's really not a bad idea to look at a place where you want to go vacation. For us, we used to love to go up into the mountains in Colorado, so we bought vacations up there, properties up there. When we wanted to move to Florida, we knew we were a couple of years ahead of that, so we bought vacation properties in Florida so we could go down there. At least we got free vacations, right? It also gave us a little bit better handle because anytime we went to vacation, we learned more about the area. We learned more about the people who come to vacation there. We weren't just relying on some third party or some gut instinct to tell us, yeah, this is what Fort Myers is going to be about. So we actually got a lot more of an education and free vacations. And so the first couple of years, it eased the sting. Because I don't know if you guys would have to tell me more and more if it's still true, but the mantra for our realtor back then was, you'll lose money your first year, you'll lose a little bit of money your second year, but you'll have a good time. Your third year, you'll make money. That's probably accelerated quite a bit from trying to build something up from scratch because of the sophistication of the search engines and and that types of stuff. But there has to be a level of patience so that you don't get scared. I guess those would be my recs. Man, all great. And then what does a day in the life look like for Dave Foster? Wow. (laughs) So I live 200 yards from the beach. Can you imagine what happens every day? (laughs) I have a cup of coffee and then we go head to the beach and I look at what he made for us. And then we just start, I I didn't realize the hidden blessing and curse of living on the East Coast. You guys know this, is that I get to start a little bit later because the rest of the country is behind me. So in terms of actually buckling down to work, but then at seven o'clock at night, California is still calling. (laughs) So true. Now, Dave, last question. If you could leave the audience with one more gem. And it could be about life. It could be about investing. It could be about sailing the world. Anything that you would want to leave the audience. One last gem. The most important commodity is not anything you have. It's time. And we express time by how we spend it. And we'll spend it on what we value. So be careful that if time is your most precious commodity, that you're not spending it to buy things that are not your true value. The days on the sailboat, I will remember my life because we got to invest time in our four children. And that time is something you can never get back, but that time is something that pays dividends forever. So keep time in your mind and invest that time wisely. Love that. That's awesome. And uh, Dave, where can people find you? We have made it very, very easy. Aiden even said it at the beginning. Go to the1031investor.com. And we've created a website there that's very user-friendly, access to myself and other consultants. I've got, I think, a 32-part YouTube series. Wow. If you're ever up late one night, can't sleep. <laughs> we got all kinds of stuff for you. But catch us there at the 1031investor.com. Awesome. Dave Foster, thank you so much. Awesome, awesome episode. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. It was great hanging with you. If you're interested in scaling your short-term rental portfolio and networking with like-minded individuals, We host a short-term rental meetup 
once a month in downtown Orlando. Click our link below in the show notes to register. See you at the next one. JB dropping blue gems. AG dropping blue gems. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing dropping blue gems.